0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: I am fascinated by the idea of really interesting studies, whether it be medical or something else, because I love the idea of people coming up with really interesting ideas and then pursuing it, and sometimes, sometimes not always, but sometimes finding out that it works. Well, there is one such study going on at Hamilton Health Science right now, and I got to tell you, on first blush, you may think it sounds a little gross, but it is so interesting that I thought I wanted to get one of the authors, one of the people who is behind this, uh, Dr. Nikhil Pai, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Gastroenterology and Nutrition. He is a principal investigator in the Pediatric Fecal Transplant for Ulcerative Colitis Trial, or PEDIFETCH. He joins me now. Dr. Pai, thanks for doing this tonight.
0: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: Uh, no, you're more than welcome. I, this this to me is one of those studies that, again, probably you get a lot of people cocking eyebrows when we get into what it is, because it is definitely out there. It is definitely something that for most people would certainly be out there. But th- walk us through, just before we get into it, in, in brief terms, explain what your study is, what you are actually trying to do. Because if I say it, people are going to say, no, they're not really doing that. What are you actually doing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so the, the purpose of our trial is to try and understand whether we can use fecal transplant from somebody who's healthy. So essentially, take the stool from a healthy person, take their poop, and if you put that into a person who has ulcerative colitis, whether you can make their disease better. So it uh, it definitely sounds at first blush like something that people probably wouldn't want to hear much about. But there's been many studies that have been done, and um, two particular studies, one specifically here at McMaster, that's shown that there might actually be a signal here, and this might actually work. So give some new treatment options for some of our kids that we're, that we're running the trial on.
1: Let's go back to the start then of this, because again, now that you've outlined what this is, and people are saying, really? You're going to put one person's poop into another person? I mean, it does sound, I'll, I'll use the word crazy, only because that would be, I think, the word that a lot of people would think, but where did this idea come from? Where did the theory Behind the idea come from that one person's stool could actually help another person health wise.
0: Yeah, so you know, it's actually it's it's something that has gone back to um, to probably decades ago. So so there's reports of back in World War One, for instance, soldiers who were um, out in the Mediterranean who would develop dysentery. They found that if they were to do something like taking the the poop from camels, for instance, and ingesting that they're actually able to treat their illnesses. Um, probably in the 1950s and 60s, for something called C. difficile or Clostridium difficile, sure. um, this infection that's now um, has huge morbidity in hospitals in particular, it was found that despite all the antibiotics that we use to try and treat this, it just keeps coming back in some people. But then when it was decided that we were going to try and give those patients uh, the stool from somebody who was healthy, all of a sudden, way better than any medication treatment, the recurrent C. difficile infections they were getting suddenly stopped and disappeared. So, it, it, this, this has been something that's been going on for for decades. It's not entirely clear what exactly in that poop is actually helping, but now when we turn the focus onto something else like IBD um, or ulcerative colitis, which people struggle with for decades. If this is something that might work, it's fascinating to other treatment options.
1: And again, the theory behind it, the medicine behind it is, what what is it that we believe is in the stool that would actually help the other person?
0: So, you know, what we think is that um, there's something in the stool, in the bacteria in the stool, that is is healthy and that interacts with the body's natural Mm -hmm. immune system to sort of fix whatever is wrong with that person who has the disease. So, you know, take for an example, uh, patients in in our clinic and uh, patients anywhere who have something like ulcerative colitis, if you were to take a stool sample from them, even at their best, when they're not sick, when they're otherwise feeling well, every person has this unique bacterial signature. And the signature in those patients who have ulcerative colitis is fundamentally different than somebody who's healthy. So if you, if you take somebody who is otherwise well and they don't have any disease, we see that there's different bacteria in those people compared to someone with ulcerative colitis. So we, we don't know exactly what it is about the bacteria that's either making you sick or making you healthy. We just know that there's a difference there. And if we can correct that difference, that might be the key to, to treatment.
1: If I go to the hospital because I've got, let's say, a kidney problem and I need a kidney transplant, I have to find someone who is going to be a match, whether it's blood type or something else. Do I have to find a match with this or could anybody who's healthy provide a sample?
0: Well, that's the thing. So as long as it's still something that's an investigational trial, there's a lot of uh, restrictions and, and a lot of steps that are involved in becoming a donor. So for our trial, for instance, we are using anonymous donors that have been rigorously screened through various testing for infection and other lifestyle questions. And then that stool is what's being used for the transplant. So unfortunately, and I guess fortunately, you can't just find someone who you think seems to be pretty healthy and get their stool to be given to you because there's still a lot of screening that has to happen and it has to be done through a proper trial.
1: Even as we're talking here, I have to say you probably—and I mean you're—you're you're a, a, a bright guy. You've got degrees, and you've got back, you got a resume that is, you know, blows everybody else away. But you must, when you talk to people outside the medical fraternity, they say, "Hey, what are you working on?" And you outline this. You must get a few people who think that this is really kind of wild. That maybe you're even putting them on at first.
0: Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. I, I kind of try and keep it on the down low when I up in <laughs> Um, it's uh yeah, you know it it's something that's definitely very different, and I think you know depending on who you talk to, when you talk to people who are um deep in science like like I have been over the past several years, the other question that comes up is you know what exactly are you doing mechanistically so um you know whether it be the general public who who finds us sort of fascinating and gross or hardcore scientists who are asking what exactly are you putting in there that's making the difference? there's questions from both ends, but I think our goal is to say, if we can find a signal and this works, then we can take the steps going backwards to figure out exactly what changed. Well, one of the
1: reasons that I wanted to have you on, and, and even though people may think it's a little wacky, is because, as I said off the top, the ide- people don't necessarily think of science as being creative. Yeah. This is really taking science and doing something just really different, really being creative to try and find a solution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's very nice to hear. Um, We would like to think so. We we also would like to think that this offers something different. And um, to many of our families who are faced with the other option of taking medications every day for the rest of their lives, having at least something else to consider um, gives a sense of comfort to some of our parents.
1: Okay. uh, Still, when, when you have someone in your office and you say, here's what we're planning to do, and then you outline it for them. I hate to keep them coming back to the point, but again, they, you must get some funny looks from people saying, "Really? Like that's real? You really want to take someone else's poo and put it inside of me, and that's your solution?"
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, and do we definitely? Uh, we don't. We certainly don't have a hundred percent uptake in this. It's something that uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, you know, we talk about it as as a potential treatment option, and the other thing too, to really be clear about, and I think you said this right at the top of your show. This is still in in the phase of an investigational trial, so there is no guarantees here, but um, we we do have data showing that it has worked in some patients. Um, and if patients are looking for another option they're willing to be part of it it's something that from what we know so far is safe and gives us another option it
1: it does require i would think though for the patients a bit of a step of faith because for a lot of us when we think of gastrointestinal issues it's because we've put we've got something into us that is a bacteria that doesn't agree with us and so now you're in you're Introducing another bacteria and these are people who already have these problems, I, I imagine it must take some convincing with some people.
0: Yeah, I guess so you know and, and uh,
1: or are they so thing, desperate that they'll do anything?
0: I, I, I suppose so. I think one of the things that you know we really uphold as a principle whenever we do any kind of research in the hospital is this idea of informed consent. So I guess you know maybe more than like convincing we present the options and this is one of them, and then we go through a lengthy spiel of exactly what's involved. I would say, though, that, you know, um, and honestly, even for myself and when I'm talking to my friends about what I do, uh, talking about poop and stuff is just not exactly like topical dinner conversation. (laughs) But, you know, for for many of our patients and and many of these kids who I see in my clinic, they're pretty upfront about how they're using the toilet sometimes up to 20 times per day. Mm. And, you know, they're struggling with their bowel habits and I'm asking them questions about the consistency and blood and all this gross stuff. So it's gross to us, but it's life for many of our patients.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. I, although, as you say, at the dinner, at the conversation, I'm sure when you get together, you know, the the family is saying, Nikhil, you know, you, you could have gone into brain surgery, <laughs> you could have chosen heart surgery. I mean, yeah. you had to choose this. It's either you were talk you were quoted in the Spectator um, last week, and I thought this was a really fascinating quote. I'm going to read it back. You were talking to Joanna Frikatich. You're talking about the pediatric study and you said, here's your words, it's hard to get approval for something where you're not totally sure of the mechanism and you're not really sure what you're doing. And I thought that was, i no, I thought that was fascinating because, I mean, I understand that in any kind of medical study, ultimately that's probably, you're just saying what's the truth. Maybe some other people are a little more, or try to obfuscate that a little more. But it's pretty interesting that you're saying right out front that this is really still an exploration.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, absolutely. That, that's very true. And, you know, I think when, when myself and, um, you know, the other members of our division and our research team look back on this, I think, honestly, it's a testament to places like McMaster that they're willing to really invest the time and effort into supporting what's really like a phase one trial, like a, a pilot study where we're just looking at mechanism. Um, we're doing it in the safest way possible, but we're trying to potentially leave a study like this with more questions than answers but uh yeah it's a leap of faith and um I, I really um i really appreciate mcmaster supporting this sort of a study
1: but you're also getting attention from around the world i understand i mean people are getting in touch with mcmaster not just i mean i suppose doctors but also you're having people who are patients contacting you seeing if they can somehow get into a study
0: yeah exactly that's right um Myself and, uh, and my research coordinator, Yelena Popov, we've been receiving calls from all around the states. Um, no calls yet from, uh, from outside of North America, but definitely from, from all over the place. And part of that is because, at least in Canada, this is the only center that's running a study like this. It's the only place that, that fecal transplants are something that is available through a research trial. And um, across the U.S. as well, there are very, very few centers that are offering this as an option.
1: Which leads to the other part that was talked about in the paper uh, in the spec, which I find remarkable in that because you are the only place that is doing this and because the only place that you can get this done is in a study, you actually put out a warning in the paper for people not to try this at home, which I, I, I I went, there cannot, doctor, there cannot possibly be people sitting in their kitchen or their bathroom trying to figure out how to do this at home.
0: Yeah, you you know, I'd like to think that's the case. And uh, I really have not had any patients who have given me their true confessions in clinic admitting to it. Um, But, you know, if you just go online or if you go on YouTube and you look up DIY fecal transplants, it is incredible how many hits you'll see on some of these sites.
1: <laughs> A do-it-yourself so, it,
0: website for that? That's, oh, yeah. Oh. Absolutely. Like the kind of blender you need to get, it's, it's gross. It's—it uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, there's all kinds of words that can be used, but it's not something that is very, uh, very comforting.
1: Oh, so, okay, so let's leave aside the really gross stuff. If you were to do this and do it wrong or have the wrong matter or something, what could actually happen to you? What's the worst-case scenario of what you could do to yourself?
0: Well, like, you know, the, the thing that, that worries me the most is, is things like infection. Exactly, you know, I think, yeah. I, I think one of the things, and and granted, I, I do want to be clear about this. Um, whatever, I guess stool is a pretty natural thing, and many of our patients Im- who are part of the trial, they embrace the idea that this seems natural. But if we look at other natural stuff, like let's say blood donation, there's all kinds of bacteria and infections that exist in blood if it's not properly tested, So in the same way, as much as sometimes parents and family members feel that uh, mom or dad or that that nice neighbor uh, seems to be a pretty healthy person, if things are not properly tested, there's all kinds of infection that can be transmitted from this stuff. So it's not just uh, you're spoiling your kitchen appliances. Um, Although you would be doing that too you would be doing that
1: too. I certainly agree. It is, uh, listen, I, I really appreciate you coming on because again, I know this is not something you're embarrassed of in any way, but it is definitely a topic that I'm, I, I don't know if you've been on with any of the other hosts. I don't know if you've been on with Bill or with Scott. This is not something that I imagine y- you get to talk in public about too often because it is kind of a squirmy kind of thing. It's it is kind of gross to talk about it, and yet it's re- again, it, it, to me it's a really inter- when you it's really interesting that you can take something that is as gross as this and find a positive way to use it. Honestly.
0: You know, yeah, it's real life, so it is what it is.
1: Dr. Nikhil Pai, really appreciate you doing this tonight. Been great. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Scott. Take care.
1: Uh, you can read again, you can go on thespec.com. The story is still up there. You can read about it, it is it, it is gross. I'm not disputing that it's gross, but at the same time, if you can take something that is gross and find a way to make it help people and help their health. And especially when, again, not, you have people who have serious problems. This is not for something really like just minor, this is for people who are suffering and you now have an opportunity to find a way to really help them. Even though as doctor said, it's not a dinnertime conversation. Really, really interesting to think and 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 again, one other thing I just want to go back to, we think of science as very linear, right we think of we think that when you talk about science, there is one answer: there is a direct path, and we talk about when you're in in school, are you going to go into the arts or are you going to go into the sciences are you going to go into the arts where your brain gets to be all creative and you come up with interesting crazy thoughts or are you going to go into science where everything is one plus one equals two, everything is in a straight line? Well, this is the height of creativity. I mean, it really is. Who? Can you imagine who it was who was sitting around saying, I got a great idea. We are going to use one person's poop to fix another person's problem. That's gross, but if it works, which it sounds like it is, that's just one example of being really, really creative in the sciences as well. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, although if you do have any of those issues, and I'm sure that some people listening do, to be honest, because it's, it is a, on a, a problem. Uh, again, go, on, go online, look up the story. Uh, his last name is Pi, Dr. Pi, P-A-I, and it's Nikhil, N-I-K-H-I-L, Dr. Nikhil Pi. You could look up that story. It is, um, it's really interesting stuff.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh,
1: Interesting, interesting story today, interesting situation today. Justin Trudeau went to speak at the United Nations. You knew that was happening, right? You've kept up with the news. You know that he was going to be going to talk to all the folks at the United Nations. And so he begins chatting and tells, you know, he's talking about this and he's talking about that. But the big theme, the overarching theme is that, uh, what Canada is doing, how Canada is taking in refugees, but how we can't live with anxiety or fear. And that's a, a, that is a really, a generally very good way to look at life. We don't want to live with anxiety or fear. We don't want to be walking through life constantly being on edge. I agree with Justin Trudeau on that point. That is a, that's a, that's a, a, a goal to which we should strive. We should want to be able to all get along and we should, I mean, it may not be realistic entirely, but sure, we can shoot for that. That's a good thing to shoot for. Who's going to disagree with the idea that we want to not have fear and we don't want to get along? Who's going to disagree with that? Nobody will disagree with that. That's a, that's, that's fair comment. That's good comment, but there was a line that he said in the middle of his speech that stood out to me as being, you know, I hate to say this because it's just so commonly used, but naive. And here it is, he was talking again about all kinds of different things with, with Canada and with the world. And he says, Justin Trudeau said, fear has never, never He says, fear has never created a single job or fed a single family. Now think about what he just said there. Fear, now he was talking in general terms, as I say, with a positive, a good theme. Then he says, fear has never created a single job or fed a single family. And that's where I think he kind of went off the rails because here is something to consider. You can be in touch with me if you think that I'm wrong on this one. I welcome your feedback. In fact, you can use the same numbers, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Fear has never created a single job or fed a single family, Justin Trudeau says. The truth is that in Canada, in North America, around the world, quite frankly, fear feeds more families and creates more jobs than almost any other industry that we have in this country. Think about this. We spend $18.6 billion a year in this country on our military. Not nearly as much as they do in the States, not nearly as much as they do in some European countries. We spend almost $19 billion a year on our military. Why do we do that? Well, there's only two reasons you spend money on military. You're either going to attack someplace or you're defending against someone attacking you. Well, we are not, with our military, we're not about to launch into a a world domination exercise. So our military exists to protect us from whomever, whoever the bad guys are. That's maybe not panic, but that is based on fear. We spend, in this country, $13.9 billion a year on uniformed policing. There's almost 69,000 police officers in uniform in this country. We have another 28,000 civilian employees of police departments. You put those together, that's 97,000 people working in police. Why? Why? Why do we, why do we have police, uh, police departments? Do we do it because we have all the confidence in the world that everybody gets along and nothing ever goes wrong? No police departments, police services generally are there to assuage our fears, to help us feel better because, so the bad guys don't take our stuff or hurt us or do whatever. That's police departments. Again, it's not a panic necessarily, but it's based on the concept of fear. We are trying to protect ourselves from something and you only protect yourself. If you have a fear of something, we pay loads and loads and loads of money for our borders to be secure. Why fear of some bad person getting in to the country with bad intentions. We buy home alarms. We buy car alarms. We buy cars with extra security and, and, and safety features, like airbags, more airbags. The more airbags, the better. If we could create a car that was all one giant airbag, we would buy that car. Some Canadians, certainly in, in the States they do, some Canadians buy guns. We have security services for our businesses. You walk into your, your place of work after hours, there's a very good chance that there is going to be a security guard there if it's a big enough place. If it's not, you have locks and you have cameras and you have other things to make sure that nobody gets in. Why is that? Is that because of confidence? Is that because of good feeling? No, it's because of fear of someone taking your stuff or ruining your stuff. We build fences around our homes. Even those who scream the loudest when certain candidates down in the States say they want to build a fence, live in a house that probably has a fence or a business that has a fence. It's just a little, you know, One of the little funny things I find about a lot of people's, take whatever issue you want with Donald Trump. There's lots to take issue with, but if you work in a place that has a fence, live in a place that has a fence, spend any time in a place that has a fence, it's kind of hypocritical then to say there shouldn't be fences, but anyway, not the point we have. Why do people join fitness clubs? Why do people go to the gym? Well, some people just like to be in shape, but a lot of other people have heard, you know what, you could drop dead at 50 of a heart attack and you're too fat and you're going to get diabetes and you're going to be out of shape and you're going to have bad things happen to your body. So we go out of fear to try and get ourselves in shape. We spend tens of millions of dollars in this country on things like mouthwash and toothpaste and toothbrushes and deodorant. And hand sanitizer well, f- to make sure that we don't, the, the, the toothbrush stuff out of a fear that we're going to show up somewhere and have bad breath. We spend the millions on deodorant out of fear we're going to stink when we show up somewhere else. Hand sanitizer, disinfectant soap so we don't get germs. We have a fear of getting germs. We have We buy all kinds of millions of dollars in birth control because we have a fear we don't want to get pregnant when we're not ready to get pregnant. We have anti-aging creams because we're scared we're going to get old. We have antivirus programs for our computers. Why? Do we do that just because we want to have it? No, because we're afraid someone's going to put something bad onto our computer. The, 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 The baby, the child safety market for stuff to do with baby safety is enormous. We spend millions and millions and millions. We spend billions of dollars a year on commercials because we're scared of drunk driving and to point out our fears, drunk driving and smoking and texting and driving and those kind of things. We spend how much money on insurance? Why? Do we buy insurance just because it makes us feel good? Of course we don't. We buy it out of a fear that our family won't have anything if something were to happen to us or that we wouldn't have anything if something bad happened to us. We build prisons. We are now going to allow in this country doctor-assisted suicide because of our fears of dying and the death process and the pain that would go along with that. So all those things are not indicative that we are living in full panic. I don't think we're living in panic. More often than not, we're not living in panic. Maybe if something really bad is happening to you at that moment, but we're not living in panic, but we certainly, the idea that fear has never created a single job or fed a single family, fear has created hundreds of thousands of jobs and fed thousands and thousands of families it is completely naive to think that somehow we live in a world that is without fear fear drives a huge part of our of our economy i just had i just had a doctor on who is doing a medical study how much of our medical resources are based on fear some of you go get your annual checkup because you just want to be healthy I, that's good but is there not a huge part of that that says oh well, I want to make sure I don't get something out of fear that I could have some disease why do you get blood tests done to check to make sure you don't have some disease and you don't get caught with it are whether we like it or not we've got two different viewpoints of the world here one of them is that we don't have any fear we shouldn't fear anybody everything should be just happy and joyful there should be no fear But the reality is that almost everything, well, not almost everything, a lot of the things that we do are based on fear. Fear is a driving force of our economy. Does that mean we have to lock out every immigrant? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean, though, that sometimes healthy fear is a good thing? Well, let me ask you this. When was the last time you closed your eyes and walked across the highway without looking? That would be living without fear. Now, that would be stupid, but that would be living without fear. We wouldn't ever do that. That would be ridiculous. We say, no, no, that's our responsibility. Well, responsibility apparently in some cases equals a healthy fear. So the idea that fear has never created a single job or fed a single family doesn't seem to ring true. It really doesn't. And again, I understand what Prime Minister Trudeau was trying to say. I understand that what he was saying was we can't lock everybody out of our borders out of fear. We can't govern out of fear entirely. Perhaps I I, and I would like to think that that's true. I would like to think that that's true that we could be slightly more optimistic than that. But the reality is we cannot suggest that we are living in utopian Canada, where fear does nothing for us, where fear, there's no market for fear, where there's no industry for fear, where there's no economy for fear. Take fear out entirely out of the Canadian economy and probably a quarter of the people in this country or some huge number along those lines are out of work. We thrive on fear. Fear drives our markets. It really does. It dro- I went through the whole list of things here, but again, just start back to the very first one that I talked about. $18.6 billion a year are spent is spent on our military. And if our military is not being put together for the purpose of invading another country, and heaven help us if it is, A, because that would be immoral, all things considered, uh, it, I mean, I'm t- speaking of to just take land as opposed to, to help out with some other country. But if we are building a military to invade a country just to grab land, A, that'll be immoral, and B, I'm sorry, I don't have a whole lot of faith that Canada is going to be able to beat too many countries in a war. I just don't. Once upon a time, maybe, back on D-Day, not so much now. But we are spending $18.6 billion on our military, and if we're not invading, why are we doing it? To protect ourselves. To protect ourselves against what? By definition, does that not mean that we have healthy fears? Healthy fears? Fear does feed families. We may not like it, but fear does create jobs. So I kind of liked a lot of a, a fair amount of what Justin Trudeau had to say today. This, however, this is naive. And if we are going to take the case that in Canada we don't have any fears, that we don't live on fear, that we don't let fear drive us, that we have uh, gotten rid of all of our fears, we've let everybody in. So now we have no fear. Naive, naive, naive.
0: The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on
1: AM nine hundred. AM nine hundred CHML.